Let's open with a short word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we have to meet tonight. We ask that you bless this class period, that you help us see the truth you would have us to understand as we look into your covenant with Abraham, which is a pivotal covenant for the whole Bible. We thank you, Father, and ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a quick reminder. Our focus is on the Bible storyline provided by the major divine covenants. We've already addressed the Garden of Eden and the covenant with Noah, and today we're going to look at the covenant with Abraham. Just one slide in review. In creation, God established a covenant relationship with Adam and Eve, and creation itself we saw. The fall corrupted mankind in creation. God put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and a Redeemer was promised. And we saw the covenant with Noah is a covenant of preservation, actually confirming or affirming the creation covenant. So there was an organic link there that we went over last week. And then finally, we saw how through Noah's covenant, God promised to preserve the world until redemption is accomplished. We have a little schematic that we're going to use to plot our progress. We took the first step up last week from the promise to Noah. Tonight we're going to look at the covenant with Abraham. And let me say that uh, the story of Abraham in, in Genesis is significant. And there's a lot of material there, which uh, in this scope of this class, we have no chance of actually giving it doing it justice, but what I hope to do is show in summary fashion, recall and remind ourselves of the covenant with Abraham and see how it is linked to the covenants that preceded it, and then as the weeks go by, we'll see how it is linked to the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. So, when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, the world was again spinning into a greater evil. As uh, you recall, we mentioned last week the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. So, looking at where we stood at the Tower of Babel, it kind of begs the question. Things aren't looking good at all. Where is this Redeemer and where is this salvation coming from? Human beings haven't changed since the flood. A depth of corruption still inhabits the heart, and the solution doesn't come from human beings. We will see in the covenant with Abraham, but through the grace of God. God stepped in and called Abraham, in a sense, one man against the world. Why do I say that? Because when he called Abraham, we need to recognize that Abraham was an idolater like the rest of his family. And like the vast population in the world in, in this area were evidenced the fall in uh, the way they lived, the way they worshiped, the way they thought, corrupt in sin. Now the basis for Abraham's call was divine election. The first move didn't belong to Abraham, but God. In fact, in Nehemiah 9, 7, it specifically says, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram 
and brought him out of the Ur of Chaldeans. And we will see in the story of Abraham how God justifies the ungodly. In this sense, with God choosing Abraham, he serves as kind of a new Adam. A new start, so to speak. We saw in the covenant with Noah that Noah kind of functioned as a new Adam at that time. Abraham now functions kind of as a new Adam. A new start for God's plan of redemption. Now the fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 seed promise is now going to come through Abraham. Even though he obviously didn't deserve mercy, the Lord is going to show him mercy. So let me just summarize the key points in the narrative. We can't do them justice, but we want to go over them and at least set the stage. There's the giving of the promise in Genesis 12. As a matter of fact, I should have given homework last week and asked you to read these chapters, but I didn't, so we'll go over them briefly. The giving of the promise first in Genesis 12. Making the covenant in Genesis 15. This is where we'll see Karat Barit cutting the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. Affirming the covenant, Hakim Barit in Genesis 17. With an expansion and supplemental information given. Every, every time a covenant member asks God's a, God a question, he answers with bigger promises. <laughs> so when Abraham said, how am I going to have a son? I mean, how am I going to be a nation? I don't have a son. How am I going to have land? And so God expands in these chapters the promises that he first initiated in Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to look at that. Abraham's obedience and the confirmation of the promises by oath is uh, given in Genesis 22. So you can see there's a lot of chapters there in Genesis that deal with this story. And given the scope of this class, we're going to only touch on the major points. Now, Abram's name was changed to Abraham in Genesis 17. But for simplicity, I'm just going to call him Abraham. We'll, we'll maybe make a point of that when we get to Genesis 17. And the promises to Abraham involve three basic things. Descendants, land, and blessing. Blessing both in the terms of Abraham and his family being blessed, and blessing in terms of the nations being blessed through Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 12, you might turn there and you can glance at some of these words as we talk about them. God told Abraham to leave his father's house and go to the land he would show him in verse 1. Now Abraham was 75 years old at this time. I guess a youngster by their standards, (laughs) not by ours today. And he made a promise. He said he would make Abraham a great nation. And in verse 2, I will make your name great. Does that phrase, make your name great, ring a bell or bring anything to mind? What did they say when they were building the Tower of Babel? They were going to make their own name great. And here, interestingly, 
God says to Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. Man has nothing to do with making a great name. I'm going to make your name great. Interesting point there. Not only would Abraham be blessed, but all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. In verse 3. I think that's significant. The covenant was never focused solely on Israel. From the beginning, there was concern that the entire world would experience blessing. In the covenant with Noah, we saw that God's purpose with Noah was to preserve the human race. And ultimately, through Abraham, the nations will be blessed. Granted, Israel becomes a focus, but don't forget this part of it. From the beginning, with Abraham, the nations will be blessed through him. Now, the word covenant, the word covenant is not used here in these verses. But the promises here are included and repeated in Genesis chapters 15 and 17 under the scope of the Abrahamic covenant. So we consider Genesis 12 as the first promise, but part of the covenant. And we'll look at that a little more as we go along. In Genesis 12:7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now in Genesis 15, we need to recognize that ten years had gone by since he was called out of Haran. He was called at 75. Ten years later, he says in verse 2 of chapter 15, I still don't have a child. God said, your very own son, in verse 4, your very own son shall be your heir. As a matter of fact, uh, Abraham, I believe in this area, is talking about only one I have to give uh, give my as my heir is, is a Syrian slave, the head of my household. And God says, your very own son shall be your heir. Trust me. Well, ten years had gone by. He still didn't have a son. I'd have probably been just like Abraham, questioning. And God assured him that his descendants would number like the stars in verse 5. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him, as righteousness, we are told in verse 6. Key text. As a matter of fact, when we look at what we see are questions from Abraham, they are not questions that arise from unbelief. They are questions that arrive from belief. I believe you. You told me you were going to make a nation out of me. I don't, I don't have a son. How can this be? The reason it's a problem for Abraham is because he believes God. How's this going to happen? So don't think this is unbelief that we see in Abraham. This is questioning from belief. And I think we as Christians 
see that in our own lives. When things happen, when difficulties arise, when things don't come about according to our plan. But when we question God, we're not questioning Him out of unbelief. We're questioning Him out of belief. And He's sensitive to that. And so He answers Abraham. The Lord then reminded Abraham of the promise of the land. And Abraham asked him, how can I know I'm going to possess the land? Verses 7 and 8. So when he asked that question, by God's instruction, Abraham was to take various animals, cut them in two, lay them side by side, across from each other, so that there was a path between them. Usually the picture shows the blood from the dead animals running into a a trough between the animals. And as was the custom, the covenant parties would walk between the animals, calling on themselves uh, what is called a self-maledictory curse, calling a curse on themselves if they break the covenant. In fact, in the ancient Near East, when this covenant was, I mean, they had cutting ceremonies like this in the ancient Near East that they were secular, but this ceremony was not unknown. And the thing that was interesting about this covenant is in the ancient Near East, the sovereign lord or the king or the ruler would have the animals cut and they would have the chief priests and the people, the vassals, the servants would walk between the animals pledging death on themselves if they didn't follow the covenant stipulations given to them by the Lord of or their king. Not the king didn't walk through there. As a matter of fact, uh, thinking about this cutting ceremony, we see that God passed between the pieces alone in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Adam at this time was in a deep sleep uh, being given a vision by God. Now, the thing that's interesting is if you look in Scripture for another place where this cutting ceremony is is specified, you will find it in Jeremiah chapter 34, verses 18 through 20. And it's spelled out there with the cutting of the animals. But note, you have to read the whole chapter to get the context. But at, at that point, It was the people who walked and chief priests and leaders of Israel who walked between the parts, pledging their obedience to the stipulations of the covenant that was being made. This has to do with the fact, if if I remember right, I should have read this before I came. Uh, Israel was in trouble. They knew they were in trouble. Jeremiah told them they were in trouble. And they said, well, we've kept Israel slaves for ourselves all these years. We haven't obeyed God in releasing the slaves on the Jubilee. So let's make a new covenant with God and let's release all the slaves. And we'll make this covenant with the cutting ceremony. And so they did it. And immediately after that, 
as soon as the Babylonians went away, they took back the slaves. And when they took back the slaves, God intervenes and is doing the speaking in Jeremiah 34 where he says, you made a covenant with me, you promised, and you broke it. You turned right around and broke it. And so what does God do? Back come the Babylonians. This time not to leave. Anyway, that's the only two places that I found in Scripture where the details of the cutting part of this are talked about. But the interesting thing here is God walked through the animal pieces. Pronouncing this is a self-maledictory oath by walking between these animals. So God here is saying, I pledge on my own life that my covenant will be true and that the promises will come about. If we think about it, there's even an application for us in the New Testament. And that is, I'm ad-libbing a little bit here, but when God walked through, He was walking through in the place of the servant. Right? In the ancient Near East, the Lord didn't, the king didn't walk through. The vassals walked through. But here God's walking through, pledging on His own life that His covenant is true and the promises will come. But He's walking as the servant. What servant walks through the blood to save us? The Lord Jesus. Now, while Abraham slept, this is an interesting point that some people miss. While Abraham slept, God showed him that his descendants would be enslaved 400 years before they would possess the land. He said, how can I know I'm going to have the land? He said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, but I'm telling you this. Your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years. That turns out to be the time in Egypt before they possess the land. Abram, you'll never see the land. Abram never owned any land. The only land Abraham ever owned was the place where they buried him and where the place where they buried Sarah. So that's interesting. When I think of this, I don't automatically think of that being stipulated in the vision, but it was. So when Abraham wakes up and realizes what God had told him in this vision, it's called a vision, there's mixed feelings, I'm sure. My descendants will number like the stars. They will inherit the land, but I'll never see it. As a matter of fact, that's alluded to, I believe, in Hebrews chapter 11. Moses didn't either. Okay, now let's look at Genesis 7, chapter 17. And this is where I'm going to hit on uh, something Don brought up. Approximately 14 years have passed again since the cutting in Genesis 15. Man, this guy is getting old. He's, he's 99 or 100 now. He's, he's 99 years old still. 
has no son. But what happened in Genesis 16 is this. Sarah says, the Lord told you that you, that you will have your very own son. Obviously, I'm having trouble. But Hagar, my maidservant, could be your slave wife and you could have a son by her. It would be your son. And so they did. So in chapter, in chapter 16, Ishmael is born. And actually Abraham seems pretty pleased with this. I have a son. And at the end of chapter 16, I think, is where he says, Lord, let Ishmael be, be the one you look upon with favor. He was saying, here's my son. This is the one you promised, right? Wrong. God says, starts off in chapter 17, walk before me, Abraham, and be blameless. Then I will establish my covenant. I think what he's saying is, Abraham, you believe me. You believe. Walk and act like you believe. He was so impatient He had to find a way to try and shortcut the system in the flesh. And so God's saying, look, Abraham, not to mention the time he tried to pawn off his wife as his sister, but walk before me and be blameless. He's not saying be perfect. Nobody's perfect. What he's saying is walk before me wholeheartedly. Walk before me like you say you believe me. He's not talking about Abraham being perfect. And I think the reason he says this here is because of Ishmael and Hagar. Also in Genesis 17, the covenant 15 and the promises from chapter 12 are expanded. There's more to it. God answers questions with bigger promises. For example... In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 17, now nations, plural, will come from Abraham. Before it was just, I will make you a great nation. Now nations, plural, will come from Abraham. Now not only will a king come from you, but kings, plural, will come from you. Verse 6. This is getting bigger and better. In this section, circumcision was given as a condition and a covenant sign. I don't have time to do a lot of discussion on circumcision. Just note that that's when it happened. All the males from eight days old and up were to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant. In fact, in the wording in Genesis 17, the sign and the covenant are so closely tied that The covenant is called the sign, and the sign is called the covenant. If you read the words there, it ends up saying, circumcision is my covenant. But it's the sign of the covenant. A lot could be discussed there, but I can't do it. And verse 16 is where God says, Abram, well, he changes his name to Abraham, and says, your son will be through Sarah. Now, Abram, uh, correct me, Don, Abram means exalted father. 
Abraham or Abraham means father of a multitude. And so he changed his name from exalted father to father of a multitude as one way of saying, my promises are going to be true. And in verse 19, not only does he tell him he's going to have his own son through Sarah, he says he's going to be named Isaac and the promise is going through him. Amazing. Not Ishmael. Now, subsequent to this, everybody in Abraham's, all of Abraham's people were circumcised, all the males, eight days and up. Ishmael was probably 13 at this point. He was circumcised. All the babies eight days and older were, all the males eight days and older were circumcised. Circumcision didn't mean you were saved. Circumcision didn't mean you were in the line of the promise. It did mean that you're part of the Abrahamic covenant visibly. Because we know that Ishmael did not receive the promise. Only Isaac and his descendants received the promise. Now, I want to point out that uh, in verse 2, where it says, uh, I will establish my covenant. Unfortunately, this is a different word than Hakim or Karat. It's Natan, and it means to give. But in the context, it's uh, Hakim. It's in the context, I see it as a synonym for Hakim. The NASB translates verse 2 as establish. The Net Bible translated as confirm. The ESV translates it make. So you can't really tell from that. But everywhere else in Genesis 17, the word Hakim is used. Now, Here's something that you'll run across, you, you may run across if you're doing much reading. Some argue, some scholars argue that Genesis 17 is a separate covenant. And like Don was saying, they see Genesis 15 as what would be termed a royal grant covenant. And in royal grants, the sovereign Lord covenanted with his people to take care of them in a unilateral sense. It's like a gifting covenant. Suzerain vassal treaties are those where obligations were placed on the vassal or the subjects or the defeated people, whatever. And so they say, well, Genesis 15 is a royal grant covenant. Genesis 17 where we see obligations placed on Abram is a suzerain vassal treaty, one with conditions. Well, I don't buy it. Neither does Tom Schreiner or any of the books I've referenced. Genesis 17 is a further explanation and supplementation of Genesis chapter 15. And here's why I'm saying that. Actually, I've already said this point. They see Genesis 15 as unilateral and unconditional, and Genesis 17 as bilateral and conditional. Right. Rather than remembering royal grant and suzerain vassal, 
they see Genesis 15 as unilateral and unconditional. Genesis 17 as bilateral and conditional. And I alluded to this. Although Karat Barit is used in Genesis 15, only Hakim Barit, meaning to confirm, is used in Genesis 17 except for verse 2 where that synonym is used. And one of the points of Genesis 17 is that the covenant promises of Genesis 12 and the covenant of Genesis 15, the promises there, will come through a son of Abraham and Sarah, which is emphasized in Genesis 17. So it links them together. Also, later scripture refers to the Abrahamic covenant in the singular. Never in scripture do you see a reference to the covenants of Abraham. Most scholars see them as one covenant. So how can that be if if they want to see part of it as unilateral and part of it as bilateral? I want to take a moment to introduce what Palmer Robertson calls the Emmanuel Principle. This isn't in Schreiner's book, but it is in uh, Palmer Robertson's book. I will be your God and you will be my people. Wellam and Gentry call it the covenant principle. I kind of like Palmer Robertson's term, the Emmanuel principle, God with us. Now, why is this important? Well, it's introduced in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, where he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offsprings, and I will be their God. So actually in Genesis 17, 7 and 8, He's only given us part A of the principle. I will be their God. Other places you will find only part B mentioned. You will be my people. But by and large, the whole principle is stated. It's stated fully in Exodus 6-7, for example. And in other Old Testament texts, such as Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 37, where the phrase, I will be your God and you will be my people, or some variant of that, you will be my people and I will be your God, or they will be my people and I will be their God. And significantly in the New Testament is mentioned at least two places, Second Corinthians 6.16 and Revelation 21.3. So turn with me to Second Corinthians 6.16 for just a moment. So Paul's talking here, and he says, beginning 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Paul's speaking here, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the Emmanuel Principle. It's mentioned again in Revelation. We'll look at that later probably. But here's the point. Whenever this phrase is used in Scripture, the author is emphasizing covenant in a highly conscious manner. When that phrase is used, even though the word covenant is not there, when you see that phrase, the idea should come to your mind He's talking covenant relationship, even though the word covenant's not there. 
it's a, it's a powerful phrase, and you'll find it throughout Scripture. You'll find it in the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant. You'll find it in the prophets, and you'll find it in the New Testament. And whenever you see that phrase, think he's emphasizing a covenant relationship. So, let's get back to Abraham. And I want to make some connections between Abraham and Adam. Because after all, we're looking at how these covenants relate. Seemingly, God promised Abraham what was lost by Adam. Adam and Eve lost their dwelling place with God. But God promises Abraham new land where God will again dwell with his people. Adam failed to rule over the garden. But God promises kings will come from Abraham to rule over the promised land. Adam failed to cultivate and keep the garden, and their sin resulted in the ground being cursed, bringing forth thorns and thistles. Abraham's family will dwell in the land flowing with milk and honey. Adam failed to trust God and listen to Eve and the serpent. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Adam's sin resulted in the fall of all humanity and the curse on creation. Abraham's seed, Christ, will be the one through whom God will redeem humanity and the cosmos. The parallels there, I think, are noteworthy. And so you see in reading about the Abrahamic covenant, you see a tie to the covenant creation with Adam. It's actually quite beautiful. Right. That covenant relationship Don's pointing out is because as we are in Christ, we stand in his righteousness based on his sacrifice, based on him as the servant walking between the dead animals through the blood. But there is coming a new day, and it's through Jesus Christ. Now let's look for a moment at the obedience the role of obedience in Adam's life. The promised blessing of Genesis 12 required that Abraham leave home. He obeyed. Abraham had to be circumcised to be a covenant member. He obeyed. In Genesis 18:19, God says, I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Conditional. We come to Isaac, or Abraham and his son Isaac. Of course, a great story with a beautiful ending about the potential sacrifice of Isaac. And God says, Because you have done this and have not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. In Genesis chapter 12, we see reference to the nations being blessed. 
We see it here in Genesis 22 through the promise, through the promised seed, through Isaac here. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. All three covenant promises, offspring, land, and universal blessing are reaffirmed to Isaac in Genesis 26, 3 through 5. And it says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my covenants. Now, there are senses in which the covenant is both conditional and unconditional. The covenant promises will most certainly be realized. But only those who believe and obey will experience the blessings of the covenant. It's too simplistic to refer to one covenant as unconditional and another covenant is not. You will find unconditional elements and conditional elements in all the covenants, I think. The textual evidence for distinction between unconditional and conditional, according to Wellam and Gentry, is just not compelling. As the true son of Abraham and the last Adam, Jesus obeyed God. We made reference to that earlier. His obedience is our righteousness. And thus what God pledged to Abraham ultimately becomes reality in in Jesus Christ, the obedient one. Abraham is a kind of new Adam who has promised a new Eden, Canaan. The curses that descended upon the world through Adam would be undone through Abraham. Accordingly, God promised Abraham offspring, land, and universal blessing. The offspring immediately being Isaac, then the children of Israel, and then the Davidic king. Still, the promise finds its culmination in Jesus Christ, according to Galatians 3.16. If you would, uh, turn to Galatians 3.16. We'll just look at that for a second. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. This is Paul talking. He does not say to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. So Paul is interpreting the Old Testament here. That's why you have to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. And the storyline of the Bible follows the promise of Genesis 3.15. So just think about it. Therefore we followed Seth, not Cain. We followed Shem, not Ham. The promise is focused now on Abraham and Isaac. Then we followed Jacob, not Esau. And from Israel to King David will follow the promise. And finally to the son of David, Jesus Christ. So so you can see the story takes us and follows the promise by way of covenant through man, through God's grace, through his plan of redemption, finally to Jesus Christ. The promise of land was fulfilled 
in essence, when Israel possessed Canaan under Joshua and Solomon. I don't have the verses, but there are verses that say exactly that. Yet Israel lost the land and went into exile because of sin. The promise of the land will find its final fulfillment in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth. 2 Peter 3.13 says, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we look forward to. The consummation, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Now the promise of universal blessing is fully and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ through whom people of every tongue, tribe, and nation are included in Abraham's family. You see that specifically stated in the New Testament. If you are a believer... You are one of Abraham's descendants, spiritual descendants, not physical descendants. So God brings together Jew and Gentile in one people under Jesus Christ. And through them, every tongue, tribe, and nation are included. And through them, through Jesus Christ and this plan of redemption, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the promise. Jesus Christ is the seed. (laughs) We who are in Christ become the the seed, the descendants of Abraham in a spiritual sense. But it's only because we're in Christ. Very important. So why covenant with Abraham? Like the covenant of creation and the Noahic covenant, God continues to establish His rule in the context of covenant relationship. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is a focal point and actually the basis for all God's dealing with mankind from this point on. And the purpose of the covenant is for God to reveal Himself. It would be difficult for a people to enter a personal relationship with the God they know. And that's where the Emmanuel principle comes in. I will be their God and they will be my people. I have revealed myself to them by way of covenant. They now know me. And through Jesus Christ, they are my children. It's amazing. So here we are. Back to our little schematic. We took a step last week from the promise to Noah. We took a step this week from Noah to Abraham. Next week we will look at the Mosaic Covenant, Davidic, then the New Covenant. Now, I miscalculated when I told Paul how many classes this was going to take. (laughs) I, I didn't realize I was going to take a whole session for the introduction. So we actually have one, two, three classes left. I hope you can stick with me. Well, I appreciate it because there is a whole lot there in the story of Abraham. So, Jim, would you close in prayer?